We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This is our fourth study, beginning this first chapter of Mark's Gospel. And I am each week so amazed at what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, to me, about the preciousness of our Savior. Let me read this text for us, and you'll have it in your mind as we go through and kind of pull it apart and put it back together. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Anyone who knows anything about Jesus and Christianity knows that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross around A.D. 33. The symbol of Christianity has become a cross since the first generation of believers after Christ's resurrection. And we who understand and believe and trust the Bible understand that there are a lot of factors that went into the death of Christ. In fact, Jesus' death is a multidimensional event when you begin asking questions about who killed Jesus and why. If I ask you who killed Jesus and why was Jesus killed, you would, you would be right to say, well, there are multiple answers for that. The Bible gives us multiple answers for that. There's the highest answer, the theological answer to who killed Jesus and why, and that is God is the one responsible. The Father is the one who orchestrated the death of his son Jesus for the salvation of those who would believe. Isaiah 53.10 tells us the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting a, him to a grief and he would render himself as a guilt offering. Clearly salvation and propitiation and 
and the substitutionary atonement pictured in that passage. So there's, there's a theological answer to who killed Jesus. The, the, the father was responsible. There's a personal answer. My sin killed Jesus. Rick Holland's sin was one of the reasons that Jesus was executed. My sin he bore. My sin was the reason. Yours as a believer is as well. He died as a substitute for those who are under the rightful and furious wrath of God because of sin. And that's everyone ever born. And he took our punishment for our offenses against God. So the personal answer is he died by us and for us. There's a historical answer, which is the Romans killed Jesus. And they killed Jesus as an answer to the Jewish leadership for crimes of insurrection and heresy. And all those are true. Mark highlights not only those answers, but as as you work through the book of Mark, he points to and highlights another answer to the question, who questions, who killed Jesus and why? We can call this the religious answer. And the answer is the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the high priest, the Jewish religious establishment extinguished Jesus as a threat to their positions. In order to really understand what Mark is telling us, look for a minute, flip over to Mark chapter 11. Well, in Mark 11, you're, you're in the final week of the life of our Lord. And you see something at the end of Jesus' life that we need to understand and import back into the beginning of his ministry. Mark chapter 11, verse 28. They came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and the disciples. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? So at the very end of Christ's life, the issue of authority is ultimately what was going to be such a threat to the Jewish leadership that they want him dead. The issue of Jesus' personal authority and the authority of his teaching was at the heart of the religious reason that the Jews wanted him executed and crucified. They wanted him out of the way so they could stay in prominence. The final question about Jesus' authority really begins in Mark's argument today in the passage here in Mark 1. The question of Jesus' authority is also the most pressing question for each of us this morning. There are massive and widespread implications for you and for me in understanding that Jesus has authority, that what he teaches is authoritative, and there's no power that can claim a rival with his authority. Let me say it in the most critical and crucial way possible. What you believe and how you respond to the authority of Jesus Christ is the most determinative thing about you. Said another way, your life in this world and your residence in eternity is dependent upon how you answer the chief question of the priests and the scribes when they said, by what authorities does Jesus do what he did and say what he said. 
Now, this conflict about Jesus, this conflict about his authority is ultimately going to be the grounds of his trial and execution from the, the Jewish perspective that they would hand over to the Romans. And it all begins in a little fishing village called Capernaum on the north shore of the lake or the Sea of Galilee here in our passage this morning. Mark records the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He highlights the central disparagement about the Lord that will follow him until his death. Who gave you authority to say what you're saying and to do what you're doing? Now, why would the Jewish leadership be so provoked by this Nazarene teaching, healing, casting out demons by his own authority? Well, Mark introduces that provocation this, can we say it, spiritual fight that Jesus picks here in Mark chapter one. And it all begins, as the slide behind me shows, in a synagogue in Capernaum. I've stood in that synagogue, and it was a, it's a synagogue built in a synagogue built in a synagogue, but it's no doubt the place where Jesus would have had this interaction with this man and taught what he taught. Let's dial in, and as we look at this passage this morning, I want to show you two introductory demonstrations of Jesus' authority. Two introductory demonstrations of Jesus' authority. Now, I say introductory because these are going to continue to loop through Michael, through Mark. They're going to cycle through his argument over and over and over. The first is in verses 21 and 20 and 21. The authority of Jesus' teaching over the religious scholars. The authority of Jesus' teaching over the religious scholars. Verse 21 says, they went into Capernaum. Stop right there. We have to park and take a little tour of this place where so much of Jesus' ministry is about to unfold in Capernaum. Now, last week I was asked a very good, a very insightful question about the disciples and Jesus' ministry in these three and a half years where he predominantly ministered as a home base from the Capernaum and Northern Galilee area. The question revealed a misconception that most people have about Jesus and this last three and a half years. Where did Jesus live? What did they do? And when the disciples responded to Jesus' call did that then launch them on a, a 42-month camping trip? Did they just leave their houses, leave their homes, leave their wives, leave their families, and, and just go with Jesus? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but wouldn't it be irresponsible for a man like Peter, who we'll find out in the next passage next week, was married and had a mother-in-law, to just leave everything? Now, some pious might say, oh, it's okay to, to leave everything for the Lord, and you would be right. But Paul's going to take great pains to talk about the responsibility that a husband has to his wife and children. So how does that all work together? Well, we find out in this study, in looking at this geography, that as Jesus calls these men to himself to abandon themselves to Christ, he doesn't call them to abandon their wives and children and responsibilities. We don't know anything about the, the, the details of these 12 men and their families. 
But it would seem out of sync with the New Testament teaching about the responsibility of Christian husbands and fathers to just leave everything. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought they left everything and followed him. Remember what we said last week about the reference to considering geography when you're studying the Gospels. One of the most prominent features of understanding the, the life of our Lord is following the Lord on a map. Paying attention to geography and what the gospel writers tell us will quickly, quickly dispel the notion that these 12 men walked away from their responsibilities and their home lives completely and began this extended camping trip where they just slept out in the open every night. Here's the reality. Except for a few trips that are clearly marked and clearly recorded and clearly identified, they probably went home every night. How do we know this? Well, first, we know that Jesus moved from his hometown of Nazareth, which is just a little bit south and east of, of the Sea of Galilee. He moved from there to the lakeside village of Capernaum, and he lived there. He called it home. Listen to Matthew, Matthew 4, 13. Jesus, leaving Nazareth, came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Matthew 9, 1, getting in a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, that's Capernaum. And then we'll see next, in the next few weeks in Mark 2, 1, when Jesus had come back to the Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was where? Home. That was home base. So yes, these men abandoned it all to follow him, but they did not abandon their God-given responsibilities. Most of Jesus' ministry, as we said last week, is within a day or two's journey from Capernaum itself. And it happened predominantly along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, he would take extended trips down to Jerusalem. He would go down and take the men with him uh, to Jerusalem uh, on the Passion Week. And remember what happened after his crucifixion? Where did they go? Home. They went back to Galilee. Now, the coast near Capernaum is going to be a grand theater in which Jesus is going to show and tell who he is and why it matters. So look back at the text. In Capernaum, he came immediately on the Sabbath and entered the synagogue and began to teach. This is important for for three reasons. First of all, when, where, and what of Jesus' demonstration When? On the Sabbath. This was a day the Jewish community came together. It still is for instruction from the law. It was not only a time of rest, but an act of worship and a time of instruction. The synagogue was a central teaching um, place in the life of Israel. Remember, very few people had copies of the law. The scrolls, the law itself was contained in the synagogue. And they would go there to hear sermons and teachings about the law and It was a place that they were regular in, they would go to regularly rather to to learn. They went on the Sabbath day and they went into the where is the synagogue. You know, I just, I can't help but but speculate. I, I don't know if you do this, but my mind when I'm reading the gospels just kind of drifts into what I hope is sanctified imagination or speculation. Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. We find that out from Matthew. He grew up in Nazareth. Would you assume that Jesus was a regular attender at synagogue? I, I would think so. 
What must that have been like for the teachers at that synagogue? And what must it have been like for Jesus to hear them teach? Knowing, actually, I wrote that. That's not right. We see him, remember at at age 12 in the temple? He gathers people around him and he's the one teaching there's so many questions we'll have all eternity to ask, but I, I wonder, I just wonder, what if that synagogue scribe or teacher in Nazareth was converted? What must that have been like in heaven when Jesus and he talked? Jesus grew up regularly growing, going to the synagogue. But he goes here and he, this is a little odd, he walks in and he begins to teach. Now, unless he was a regular scribe there, this would have been highly unusual. The scribes, as we'll see, were a very close sect. They were scholars who had kind of a, uh, an old boys club and it was hard to get in. It would be, think about this. I, I'm here, I'm sitting on the front row. We finished the first, the, the last song and someone comes from the back and they come up and they elbow me out of the way and they come up and they start preaching. Would that just seem a little off? Well, it would unless you're teaching what he taught and how he taught and what happened happened to him. He came to the synagogue in Capernaum and as we know from the other gospels, he sat down. He would have sat down. It was just the opposite of what we do here. I stand and you sit. They would have stood around the walls and he would have sat down assuming the place of authority to teach. Now, the exact content of this sermon or the text that he was expositing is not mentioned here. But what is mentioned raised the eyebrows of the hearers. It was something completely new and different. Verse 22 tells us they were, it's one of my favorite Greek words, amazed, we'll talk about that in a moment, at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority. And here's the dig, not as the scribes. We find out first that the people who heard Jesus teach were amazed. Ek pleso. It means astounded, to be struck with astonishment, to be bewildered, blown away, and become speechless. The people were dumbfounded, out of their senses. We would say they blew them away. What he said and and actually how he said it with the authority with which he spoke. spoke. What made his teaching so authoritative? Now, this is so important. Mark makes a comparative. He doesn't just make it abstract. He taught with authority. Now, he will come back to that in Mark, but here's the foundation. He taught with authority not as the scribes taught. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be introduced to some people that we're gonna need to do some homework on. Scribes, Pharisees, priests, Sadducees, lawyers. Who are these people? Well, let's start with the scribes. In the New Testament, scribes were the interpreters and teachers of the Mosaic Law. They were the theological academics. They were the scholars of the day. Remember the revival of, in the time of Ezra? 
with Nehemiah in Nehemiah verses, uh, chapters 8 and 9, we see this massive revival and it was because people began to interpret and understand the law and teach people what it meant and that was what saved the nation of Israel in their faithfulness to Yahweh. Well, that began a group of scholars who, for very good reasons, were, were studying the law. They were becoming experts they would become the rabbis and the teachers. Now, most of the scribes in Jesus' time were associated with the Pharisees, who were the theological uh, conservatives, and the Sadducees were the theological liberals. Well, the scribes were typically out of the sect of the Pharisees. In fact, scribes and Pharisees, that, that tandem uh, comes so often in Mark and in Matthew. It's a common designation for the resistance and the hostile animosity toward Jesus. The, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be uh, synonymized with the group that was opposing Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the scribes, the theological scholars of the day, the experts, were the ones who had the biggest problem with the Son of God. We'll meet the scribes again in Mark, but for now, it's important to look at what Mark highlights as Jesus' teaching was different than theirs. How so? I couldn't improve on William Hendrickson, who provides an excellent set of contrasts between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the scribes. This is what he says. Jesus spoke the truth, but the scribes spoke corruptly and evasive with strange meanings and Gnostic understandings. One of their favorite things to do was to say, you don't really understand like I do. Secondly, he presented matters of great significance, matters of life, death, eternity. They often wasted their time on trivialities. How far can you walk from your home on the Sabbath day? How many steps can you take? Thirdly, theirs was a system, there was a system, rather, in Jesus' preaching that was easy to follow. And as the Talmud proves, if you've ever done any reading in the Talmud, they just rambled on and on and on in cyclical repetitions. Jesus excited the curiosity of his hearers by massive use of illustrations, and their speeches were usually as dry as dust. Jesus spoke as a lover of men, one concerned with their everlasting welfare. They had little or no love, and we'll see that when we get to Mark chapter 12. Finally, this is most important because it's specifically stated here. Jesus spoke with authority. Why? Because this message came from the Father himself and his own intrinsic inner being they were constantly borrowing from fallible sources, one scribe quoting another scribe, quoting another rabbi, and on and on. In other words, the scribes didn't speak with their own authority. They were men of endless quotations and footnotes. Their, their sermons were often, well, rabbi so-and-so said this, and the scribe so-and-so said that. Even the the, the prophets rightly attributed their pronouncements to thus says the Lord. They just quoted people. Now, I, I understand that. I'm working on a, a, a bit of an extended paper uh, out at Midwestern right now. And 
I'm finding the need to constantly footnote everything. You know why? Because I don't have a lot of authority. There are smarter men than me who need to be called in so I can say something with any level of authority. Well, expand that to these scribes. Get this. Jesus never needed a footnote for anything. He never had to quote anyone for authority except Scripture itself. You see this really irritating the Pharisees in Matthew 5. There are a series of statements by Jesus where he proclaims, you have heard it said, remember what he says next? But I say... He was no doubt pointing to the scribes that he was trumping them with his own divine authority and understanding of God's word. So the first thing they saw is what he says is completely different than anything that we've, we've ever heard. They'll say later, what is this new teaching with authority? He, he just says things, and they're obviously true to our, our hearts without quoting any of the errant rabbis who often disagree with each other. And they'll come back and assess that in just a minute. Not only was Jesus a man who spoke with his own authority, the next demonstration is, of his authority is by something he did. He, he cleansed a man of having an evil spirit. So number two, the authority of Jesus' power over the demonic realm. And again, we're gonna have to do a little homework today so that we will be able to navigate these, um, uh, these expulsions of these evil spirits in the coming chapters. Verse 23, just then, I love this, just then means while he was teaching. The devil knows when to interrupt. Jesus is teaching, while he's teaching, this man who has an unclean spirit completely interrupts him. There was just then, at that time, when he was teaching, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Don't miss the connection between this encounter and what recently happened between Jesus and the devil in the desert. Remember the devil uh, met him for 40 days, 40 nights, was tempting him. Jesus passed the test. He met the strongest attacks from the prince of the power of the air in the desert, came out victorious, and it should be no surprise that Satan continues his attack by demon-possessed people who will come up and interrupt him. Shouldn't surprise us. Wouldn't you imagine Satan is a sore loser? Let's talk for a minute about demonization, having a demon or a demon possessing someone. What does that mean in the New Testament? And, and, and I just got to tell you, we have to be very careful here and let the Bible inform what we think and not 1973's movie, The Exorcist, or Frank Peretti in 1986, This Present Darkness. Those are fiction. That's not where we get our theological categories for demonology. In fact, they're completely wrong. 
I remember reading This Present Darkness. How many of you remember that book in the, in the mid-'80s? And reading it, and it, it was just shocking to me that this was the theology of This Present Darkness. It's a story about uh, the territorial demons who are fighting and what's happening on the earth. It's kind of got a two-dimensional storyline going on, the demons and the angels that are fighting in heaven and the good and the bad men that are fighting on the earth. And as long as the Christian man, the hero of the story, was praying, then the angels were winning the fight over the demons. And when he stopped praying, the demons started winning. Who's sovereign in that theology? Or the exorcist. I gotta admit, I, I mean, I grew up in the 70s. I never saw the exorcist because I was scared. I saw some commercial where this girl's head turns around and I thought, I don't, wanna, I don't, I don't need that in my brain. What is demonization in the Bible, in the New Testament? And by the way, you'll find the greatest accounts of demonization during the life and times of Jesus and the first generation of the church than anywhere else. Why? Because the enemy so wanted to forestall the advance of the gospel and the kingdom of God in Jesus. David Pallison has an excellent book called Power Encounters. Unfortunately, it's out of print. I think you can still find a copy on Amazon, a used copy. He writes this, demonization is in fact recognized and identified by its expression, listen, through miserable conditions such as blindness, deafness, paralysis, dementia, and seizures. Sins such as unbelief, fear, anger, lust, and other addictions point to Satan's moral lordship, but never to demonization or demon possession. They never call to be cast out of someone. People, he writes, are victims of demon, demonic sufferings just as they are victims of lameness, blindness, or purely physiological seizures. I think it's important to highlight this in light of the contemporary design in extreme charismatic circles where people believe that there are demons of lust, demons of anger, demons of low self-esteem, demons of substance abuse, I've even heard of the demon of post-nasal drip being cast out of people. Is that how demons work? No. Demons in the New Testament were all about, listen, physically afflicting people. Don't even try to turn here. Just, just hold on. I'm going to go really fast. Matthew 4, verse 23 and 25. Jesus going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. They brought him, to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. He uses the term healing for those who were demonized. Luke chapter six, verse 18. Those who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. Luke seven twenty one. At the very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He also gave sight to many who were blind. Luke 8, 2, some of the women who have been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Luke 9, 9 42, 
while Jesus was still approaching, the demon slammed the person he was possessing to the ground, threw him into convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed him. Luke 13, 11, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent over double, couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he, made, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect and began glorifying God. Here's the point. When you do an honest study of demonization and possession in the New Testament, it's always in reference to someone having a physical sickness or ailment. Not struggling with a sin. That's important because this current warfare movement puts the responsibility of sin on demons that need to be cast out rather than a soul that needs to repent. The New Testament never links demonization to moral evil and sin in the person who has a demon. Neither does the New, Te does the New Testament link inhabiting demons to sin, curses, objects, territories, except for two places. There are only two places in the New Testament, two men, I should say, in the New Testament, where demonization is attributed to them and they are said to be sinners because of it. The first was in Matthew eleven eighteen 18 and Luke seven thirty three. John the Baptist was accused of being a sinner because he had a demon. Secondly, in Mark three twenty one and in John seven twenty and Luke eight, John ten, Jesus himself is accused of sinning because he has a demon. Why go into that detail? The bottom line is this. Sin is not the cause of demonization, and demonization is not the cause of sin in the New Testament. The devil didn't make you do it. Let's say it this way. If the devil were to be bound... And thrown into hell today, you and I would still struggle with our sinful flesh. Back to the narrative. Next part of this event is incredible. The demon uses the vocal cords of this man and openly announces, drum roll, the true identity of Jesus. And he cried out, verse 24, saying, what business do we stop right there, you and I? But then he's gonna have a plural talking about the demons who is either with him in this man or those who are also doing their business around the Galilean lake. We'll see that in a moment. What business do you and I have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth. That tells us that the demons had known where he grew up. They were very cognizant of the workings and the life of the Lord Jesus. They knew who he was, but it wasn't just who he was and where he was from on the earth. We know, well, he says this, have you come to destroy us? I don't think he's saying, have you come from Nazareth to destroy us? I think he's saying, have you come from heaven? How do we know that? I know who you are. You are the Holy One 
of God. Now, there's a lot here that Mark will expound upon later in his gospel. We don't have to exhaust it now. But the recognition of Jesus' former address, Nazareth, is not the reference to where he came from. It is where the Holy One would have come from, heaven itself. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3 talks about the Holy One of God. This is the reference. You are the Messiah. This demon is the one who recognizes the Messiahship of Jesus. This is, this is incredible to me. The demons understood Jesus' identity better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Incredible. By the way, later in Mark 5, 7, the demons will say that Jesus is the most high, God himself. In Matthew 8, 29, they call him the son of God. So just picture this. Jesus is teaching. This crazed man with a demon comes and cries out. Why are you here? What business do we have to do with each other? Have you come to destroy us, plural, indicating probably more than one demon going on in this man? And then he says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. What was he doing? He was getting intentionally ahead of the announcement of Jesus' Messiahship. Why? We're going to find out in a minute. Because if he, the demon, if the demons and, and Satan could get people to see Jesus in his pre-crucified and pre-resurrected state and his ministry there, they would think that Jesus is all about health and wealth and feeding and healing You would almost expect Jesus to say, you're right, I'm the Holy One. Let's talk about that. Everyone, open your scrolls to Isaiah chapter 61. But in a stunning, if you were reading this for the first time, you would be shocked that Jesus says, be quiet. Shush. Stop saying the truth. Come out of him. This will be a theme in Jesus' ministry and talking to demons who affirmed his identity and also speaking to his disciples who were affirming his identity. Why? After the transfiguration, Jesus tells his disciples exactly why he does not want the word about him to spread yet. In Mark 9, 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Here it is. Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. After Peter's confession up in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says in Luke 9, who do you say I am? They said, you're Christ the God. Peter says, you're, you're, you're the one. But he warned, he warned in them, instructed them to tell no one this. Don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. What? Does that not seem a little backwards? He explains why, saying, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised up 
on the third day. You know what he was saying to the demon? You know what he said to the disciples? The gospel message is not complete until I've risen from the dead. Otherwise, the people would begin to do why the crowds began to form around him. Who wouldn't want a Messiah who can feed thousands of people with a boy's lunch, heal sickness and diseases? Wouldn't you vote for him for president? That'd be the guy I want to follow. And Jesus says, get out of him. He speaks to the demon and gives him a command. What happens? Verse 26. Throwing him into convulsions. Who did that? The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. The demon obeys Jesus, leaves the man, but not without a final display of crying out, using the man's vocal cords one more time, throwing the man into convulsions, trying to be as much of a distraction to Jesus' teaching as possible. What must that have been like? To go from crazed convulsions to instant peace of mind. We don't know the details of what happened, but we do know what people thought about it. Verse 27. They were all amazed. It's a cousin to the word we looked at earlier about being blown away out of their mind with astonishment. They were all amazed. And so they began to have this talk. They debated amongst themselves saying, what? I love this. What is this? What is going on here? Who is this guy? And then they give the two categories that they had just heard and seen. A new teaching with authority. Jesus quotes no one but himself and the word and has absolute clear understanding of God and his word. And he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Who is this? Who is this man? Here's the point of Mark's narrative here. Jesus is amazing and the people were rightly amazed. I think there's a lesson there for you and me to understand anything about our Lord is to be amazed, is to be astonished, is to be blown away. Please don't let these stories that I know you've read and heard and seen flannel board illustrations of your whole life, please don't let them be so familiar that you don't stop and say, what would that have been like? Mark recorded this to put our minds back in this context, in this narrative, in this situation, and experience it through the amazement of those who witnessed it. Jesus is amazing. Are you amazed? He taught with personal authority, the authority of God. He exercised authority over the demons and they obeyed him. And then Mark's favorite word, just then, immediately, as a result of this, verse 28. Well, 
the news spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. No internet, no Google, no Wall Street Journal. Person to person, you're not going to believe what happened in the synagogue on Saturday. You're not going to believe this. This guy from Nazareth started teaching. What he taught was overwhelming. It burned in our hearts as true. He gave us understanding of the texts, the scrolls. While he's teaching, this man with a demon began talking to him in an audible voice. Somehow they, I don't know how it sounded like, but they knew this wasn't the man. And Jesus talked to the demon, the demon left. Can you imagine the dinner conversations? And this was, the, this was the story, you'll see this over and over, people saying, you're not going to believe what happened about Jesus. It was amazing. Now this is what's significant. The news is about to travel. He didn't teach his scribes and they're about to find out. He didn't command as the Pharisees and they're about to find out. He commanded the demons and they know all about who he is. The hourglass of timing to the cross in this passage turned over. And from here forward, the sand is going to flow ever so constantly toward Jerusalem and the crucifixion. I can't resist. Can we, can we just reach forward just a little bit? If they were amazed at this, wait till the scribes see what else he does. Turn the page and look at chapter two. Can't wait till this passage, the healing of the paralytic. Look at verse five. Jesus, seeing their faith, remember the man's dropped through the roof. We'll see that in a few weeks. He says, son, <laughs> your sins are forgiven. What? Some of the scribes, our friend the scribes, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? This was their conclusion. He is blaspheming. Why? Who can forgive sins but God? Mark is about to turn page after page after page and show you the authority, listen, of God demonstrated in Jesus. Why? Because he is God. One question. What is your disposition toward the authoritative Lord Jesus? Have you submitted your life to his authority? This is Lordship 101. If he is the authority, do we compete with his authority in the rule of our lives? Do we compete with his word in the regulation of our lives? 
We live in a world, we're gonna see this over and over in Mark, so did they. Authority has such a bad taste in people's mouth. They just don't like being told what to do. They don't like not being in charge. And they don't like when some other person is in charge or has authority over them. Well, welcome to Christianity. But we give the authority of our lives over to someone who is true and wise and loves us and wants the best for us, is completely trustworthy of our trust in his authority and lordship in our lives. Jesus is amazing and they were amazed. Are are you amazed? Can you slow down enough in these paragraphs, in these narratives, to just say, wow, wow, what a God. It's so counterintuitive. If I had been in God, and, and be glad that I'm not, and this demon had said, you're the one, you're the holy one, I would have looked at the crowd and said, yeah, you know, cat's out of the bag. Let's set up a throne. Jesus wasn't there to be admired. He was waiting until the resurrection to initiate true Christian worship. And he does this in a little bitty synagogue in Capernaum. Not in Jerusalem where we would expect the king to inaugurate his ministry. He's up here in a fishing village with these four brothers with him in the synagogue on Saturday teaching the truth. Well, hold in your mind, hold in your mind. He taught differently than the scribes. That is going to be a theme. Mark is going to cycle so that we get the point. It's a good day to ask if you've submitted your life to the authority of Christ. He has authority over everything. All authority, he'll say, In the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We'll see in chapter two, he has the authority to forgive sins. Do you, have you come to a place where you've given your wretched, miserable, guilt-laden life over to the Savior who can grant forgiveness, give assurance, provide purpose and meaning? This is the day, this is the day. Let me ask you, don't walk, run to the cross. Run to Christ. Don't let another day slip. Don't postpone it another minute. The one who has authority will also give you forgiveness and healing in the way that you can't even imagine. 